<laughs> yeah. And you know what? Maybe it's just, oh, there's a siren going. That's the <laughs> Coleman Francis squad. This time we watch Season 6, Episode 21, The Beast of Yucca Flats. Not to be confused with a hit cooking show, The Yeast of Bucca Flats. Ooh, and we've also got two shorts to do. But before we get to all that fun stuff, do we have any follow-up? Not particularly, although I should mention that one of the things that The Beast of Yucca Flats is notorious for is that it is a baffling movie without any natural sync sound. Yes. And one of the things we are covering for an upcoming episode of A Part of Our Scaredage, it's going to come out on Canada Day. A Part of Our Scaredage, of course, being your leading CanCon horror podcast. Uh, we are covering Things, which is a movie that is baffling uh, and makes no sense and, and feels like a, a fever dream where you have taken some kind of very hard hallucinogen and you drifted in and out of sleep while watching a horror movie wow. it does not feel like a movie at all and uh, i feel it's somewhat uh, comparable plus what makes it i guess extra special is that it is the first episode where we've had a guest so uh, my friend matt uh, who runs the youtube channels thought slime and scaredy cats the former a political channel and the latter a horror movie channel uh, he's joined us and it was uh, an absolute blast having him on so i think it'll be a really fun episode and i think fans of this show should check it out Sounds like a good starter episode if you've been meaning to check out Adam's other podcast. Now, you said the movie in question is called Things? It's just called Things. <laughs> so I assume that sort of like how Aliens is the sequel to Alien, this is meant to be a sort of sequel to The Thing? I assume that uh, the little creatures were supposed to be the spawn of the thing or, or the Adams thing from the Adams family because they're little tiny ant creatures that crawl around. And I was like, yeah, that's relatively close to a human hand. Oh, no, you're doing another ant movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, oh dear. Well, okay. If you appreciated all the ant stuff from Phase 4, maybe you can get some more in this episode. I don't know. I don't know if you actually talk about ants. I haven't heard the episode yet. I imagine you're still editing it. Oh, man. No, I finished. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, good, good. It's COVID-19. What else am I going to do except edit it? <laughs> well... That's very exciting. The movie does have a giant ant on a toilet, so it's a little bit ghoulies as well. So come on. There's, it's got all sorts of things to recommend for it. Please don't watch it. Just listen to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, obviously, I think everybody should go listen to it. I guess, however, we should talk about another Coleman Francis film. People continue to be very excited that we're doing the Coleman Francis trilogy. They were excited to rewatch The Skydivers, and uh, I bet they'll be excited to rewatch The Beast of Yucca Flats. They both go down smooth like gas station coffee. This time we watch Season 6, Episode 21, The Beast of Yucca Flats. But first, some shorts. First up, we've got Money Talks. William is a high school student who wants to go to the school dance, but, uh-oh. There's a cover. He needs a whole $2 to get in, and he's only got a 50-cent piece to his name. But that 50-cent piece has the head of Benjamin Franklin on it, and, with a little magic and a little luck, a silhouette of the Founding Father will sneak into William's room and lecture him about how to make a budget and save some money. 
Now, this is valuable advice, but it, um, it's not actually going to solve his immediate problem. Uh, he can save all the money he wants, but he doesn't have any money right now, and the dance is real soon. Oh, well, good thing the kid has already figured out how to shake down Dad from Aura Green. Our second short is... Ah, ah, I'm having a freakout up to ten years later! Progress Island, USA, formerly known as Puerto Rico, until some guys in PR... Uh, that's both public relations and Puerto Rico, because this comes from the Puerto Rico Public Relations Board. Anyway, they decided to rebrand it Progress Island USA. But come on, isn't it great? Oh, oh, sure, Progress Island has its cuckoo quirks, but otherwise it's just like regular America. They've even got a Walgreens. Why, it's a business opportunity just waiting for you, you savvy business person, to invest in. Move your factory to Progress Island today, and we'll throw in a soundtrack that just will not quit. Puerto Rico! And now our featured presentation. Let's talk Beast of Yucca Flats, you dig? Joseph Javorski, noted scientist, recently escaped from behind the Iron Curtain. His wife and children killed and hungry. His aide carries a briefcase. Secret data on the Russian moonshot? Joseph Javorski, destination Yucca Flats, and a meeting with the top cats at the A-bomb testing ground. Two of the Kremlin's most ruthless agents. Their orders, get the briefcase, kill Javorski. Flag on the moon, how did it get there, daddy-o? Secret data, pictures of the moon, man. Secret data, never seen before outside the Kremlin. Man's first rocket to the moon. Yucca Flats, the A-bomb. A man pushes a button. Something happens. Joseph Javorski, noted scientist, dedicated his life to the betterment of mankind. Young Joe Dobson, desert patrolman. Nothing bothers some people, not even flying saucers. from the city, not yet caught by the whirlwind of progress, feed soda pop to the thirsty pigs. Coyotes, once a menace to travelers, missile bases run them off their hunting ground. One ten in the shade, no shade. Jim and Joe try to make their way up to the plateau to reach the top. A man needs an airplane. A jump from a plane could get you on top, but the killer's not on the plateau. Hours in the hot desert sun with no trace of the killer. To put Jim Archer's paratroop training to work is the only answer. A trip up into the skies and jump. And if the killer is on the plateau, kill him. Always on the prowl. Looking for something or somebody to kill. Quench the killer's thirst. Shoot first. Ask questions later. The pilot drops his man. Joe Dobson moves north. Hank will be caught in the middle. An innocent victim caught in the wheels of justice. A man runs. Somebody shoots him. Jim Archer. Ex-paratrooper, trained to hunt down his man and destroy. 
the hunter and the hunted with only a few hundred yards between him and the enemy. Jim closes in for the kill. Joe Dobson headed north and met Jim. Twenty hours without rest and still no lead. Blistering desert heat. Jim and Joe plan another attack. Find the beast and kill him. Man's inhumanity to man. Joseph Javorski, noted scientist. Tomorrow is a drag, man. Tomorrow is a king-size bust of Yucca Flats. Meanwhile, on the Satellite of Love, we open with Mike wallpapering the satellite. He doesn't quite make the pattern match up, but that's okay because it won't last beyond the first short. Anyway, the Mads are excited to announce Proposition Deep 13. With this campaign, they will show Mike and the bots another Coleman Francis movie. Mike stumps his counter-proposition. You can show him that movie, but they will survive. We'll have to wait for the end of the episode to learn the results. In the first intermission, Mike and the bots are having a quiet day when a party bus drops by. Mike and Tom want the rowdy partiers to go away, but Crow hops over to the ship. Tom makes a siren noise to scare them into thinking the cops are coming, and Crow gets back just in time, with a tattoo. Halfway through the episode, Crow wants to know if it's lunchtime yet. He really wants to know this. And who can blame him? Lunch is great. In the final intermission, Crow asks for you, dear viewer, to give your money to the Film Anti-Preservation Society, or FAPS. Without your donations, countless terrible movies will continue to survive, to be seen by our children and our children's children. Please give generously. And at the end of the episode, Mike and the bots are triumphant. They have survived. They celebrate with a few viewer letters and a victory speech. Dr. Forrester will only get past his disappointment by slapping Frank again and again throughout the closing credits. Let the healing begin. The end. You know, of all the shows to teach kids about FAPS, I never thought it would be MST3K. Mm, gotta learn somewhere. Better than learning it on the street. I suppose. Hey, your episode summary really clarified what's going on in this movie. <laughs> I think our listeners will really appreciate the service you've provided in explaining such a baffling film. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it, it, it's really what it comes down to is that Beast of Yucca Flats makes a lot of sense when you think about it. When you think about it of the sheer poetry of the film. <laughs> It's such a weird movie. It's such a great episode. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because I haven't seen it in a long time, but I was rollicking with laughter watching this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was super fun. I had forgotten kind of the episode because it's been so long since I've seen it. Like, I don't think I've seen this since I was like in first year university. Uh, <laughs> so it's been a while and it's got everything you could want. It's got some fun host segments and it's got Tor Johnson walking around with terrible makeup and best bang for your buck, two shorts, not one, two. And one of the best shorts they ever did, Progress Island USA. I've watched that many times in the last <laughs> several years because I seek that one out because it is so good. The music is so fantastic. The commentary and the jokes are so cutting and sharp and fast-paced. The film is so ridiculous in its weird proposal of selling Puerto Rico to you know American business people who are scared of Spanish. <laughs> it's, it's got everything. Yeah, all you could ever want is there, but it's like, I, I'm really for it for that rollicking soundtrack. Someone please, you know, I don't care what novelty or obscure imprint releases it. Someone give us the soundtrack to Progress Island USA. <laughs> um, 
this is an absolutely fantastic episode and i don't know i feel like i feel like it's just shot up in my rankings yeah uh, it's it's a lot of fun and once again i uh, i have to i have to really pull for it's like hey if you want to to test yourself with an episode particularly a, a mic episode put in a coleman francis that's what you want and uh, once again, it's like we have a fast-paced episode that has two shorts, and more importantly, it has a Coleman Francis movie. But best of all, it's a Coleman Francis movie with Tor the Rock Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I think this one is an even better one if you're going to try showing a, a complete newbie a Coleman Francis, because this gives you a lot of shorts that are very approachable at the beginning. And then the film is just... All right, so the film doesn't have dialogue no <laughs> in the normal sense it's all overdubbed later and there's a lot of silence anyways and this gives them all the room in the world to make jokes and they take full advantage of it and that's fantastic but by the end of it of course my brain was screaming for relief like <laughs> this movie what is this movie <laughs> see i have i have a hot take in, in much the same way that it's like i enjoyed both the shorts but uh, why study industrial arts is like in my top five of shorts so these these don't beat that for me but i think that this is coleman francis's best movie <laughs> what does that even mean <laughs> well i found the skydivers to be maddening infuriating even and red zone cuba is so such a slow burn of bleak unpleasantness in the form of coffee that's just gone bad and milk that has curdled within said coffee or cream if you're that sort of person and yet beast of yucca flats with its poetic narration with its beautiful shots of nothing with its inexplicable murder sequence at the very beginning, where it's like, wait a minute, is that supposed to be Tor Johnson? The guy has torn sleeves, but it's clearly not Tor Johnson. <laughs> but what? Uh, the the children who show up, who are just there to play in the desert? Yep. <laughs> only to get potentially trapped by Tor Johnson. And, of course, the beautiful ending featuring a jackrabbit. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole thing is just like ah oh, this is just this is just a warm hug on a cold day like carnation hot chocolate this is such a amazing glob of cheesy goodness that i could totally watch it on its own and i did in fact watch feast of yucca flats because uh, it is an easy like it's even less than 60 minutes it's 54 minutes i think oh wow and, yeah and i ended up watching it again uh to get the narration but also i just found myself transfixed and be like huh you know what for a colin francis movie it's not half bad <laughs> I mean, I think this is the most Coleman Francis movie. I mean, I don't know. I'll have to wait until I rewatch Red Zone Cuba. But in a sense, like, the Skydivers is way too watered down. Hmm. It's it's trying to be a normal movie, and it's just not succeeding. And that's fine. But this is this is special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Maybe it's the fact that this is wearing a genre, you know, the skydivers is supposed to be a drama. Red zone. Cuba is supposed to be a, a drama slash adventure movie. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a monster movie. And as such, there's an inherent fun in putting on a monster movie with Tor Johnson, no less. I mean, the credits read, even though he's Joseph Jaworski, noted scientist, uh, Tor Johnson is credited as the beast and the beast only in the movie. And as such, there's there's a gentle whimsy to this movie that's either 
Coleman playing within a genre and just trying to, to make a genre movie, and also possibly the fact that this is the first of the Coleman Francis trilogy. So his sourness and his bitterness, both in life and his uh, his inability to get the right shots and editing for 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 his film, like that hasn't set in yet. So there, that sourness that permeates Skydivers and Red Zone Cuba just isn't there. It is a bleak film. <laughs> yes. <It's not. laughs> but is it bleaker than Skydivers? Is it bleaker than Skydivers? I don't know. It's pretty similar. It's just, you know, random stuff happens. It's pretty terrible. Mm. Dads get shot while attempting to find their kids who are lost in the desert in a nuclear test field. You, you, you might say that all those people were caught in the wheels of progress. Exactly. Exactly. It's just randomly lashing out at things. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's uh, it's very Coleman Francis. That's to say, it's very Coleman Francis. I guess to draw a distinction, the skydivers in Red Zone Cuba, well, that's one thing. See, Beast of Yucca Flats is like a teenager throwing a tantrum. You can deal with it, and you can sympathize with it, and you can understand. But Red Zone Cuba and the skydivers are just deeply disturbed adults that you don't know how to help. Are you Benjamin Franklin? That's right. Come over here, son. I'd like to talk to you. Could you have your slave press my suit? Well, let's talk a little bit about the shorts before we get on to more Coleman Francis mania. Um, and the first one has a celebrity cameo in it. Benjamin Franklin shows up to solve this really scrawny teenage boy's problems. <laughs> yeah, this was reminiscent to me of a failed pilot, possibly a failed sitcom, although I don't, I think it's just a failed pilot. I think it never went to air, but it was called something along the lines of like Rodney or Rodney and me, in which a, a child is such a huge fan of Rodney Dangerfield that Rodney Dangerfield like appears to him in his dreams and stuff Whoa. and like offers life advice, which is, man, and the last person you want to get life advice from is Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> All right. Um, that's an interesting parallel that I don't know if anybody else has drawn before. <laughs> um, I want to know, as the resident secretly American person on this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, I want to know how much you know about Benjamin Franklin. Uh, well, of course, Benjamin Franklin is famous for a variety of things. One, he cannot tell a lie. Two, <laughs> he has wooden teeth. Uh -huh. and, and three, I do believe that he is buried underneath Fort Knox, mummified, promising to return when the economy gets worse. Well, you definitely have everything you need for tonight's game, Benjamin Franklin or not. And he's safe. Is a penny hurt or not? Because Benjamin Franklin is the known weirdo of the founding fathers of the United States, and he did many curious things. Oh, he's your Diefenbaker. Is Diefenbaker the one who talked to his dead mom? Wait, Diefenbaker uh, believed his dog was a ghost looking after him. Yes, yes. Yeah. We interrupt this podcast already in progress for an erratum. Adam is, in fact, thinking of Canadian Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. We'll have a link in the show notes to his Wikipedia page. Read all about him. You'll be glad you did. And now, back to the show. He's a bit like that. Well, you'll see. You'll see. I mean, maybe not kooky in that way. Just, he did a lot of things. He had a life. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, I've got five little tales of Benjamin Franklin, and you will get to decide which one of them is not a real story. Ooh, tales from the cryptocurrency. <laughs> exactly. Very good. Our first one. Benjamin Franklin always had a way with words. Why, 
Even as a teenager, he had a popular newspaper column. He wrote about fashion, marriage, and women's rights under the name Silence Do Good. Mrs. Do Good, for yes, Silence is an 18th century woman's name, Mrs. Do Good was a widow. And so the very young Benjamin Franklin received many offers of marriage from charmed readers, all of which he, of course, had to decline. This is true. <laughs> all right. This has to be true. <laughs> you sound confident. Silence Do Good is just too plausible to be a lie. Yes. Yes. If there's one thing I've learned from Cryptkeeper and I is that the most outrageous thing is often true. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see how this next one goes. Number two. Benjamin Franklin invented many things, the lightning rod, bifocals, and a fancy flexible urinary catheter at a time when most catheters were solid silver tubes. Youch. Hmm. But perhaps his most curious invention was a musical instrument, the glass harmonica. Hmm. It's a series of glass bowls mounted on a spindle. You touch the bowls as they spin, and they create an eerie sound, not unlike what you get if you rub a wet finger around the rim of a wine glass. And the instrument was popular enough that Mozart and Beethoven wrote pieces for it, even though the ethereal sound was said to drive players and listeners alike mad. <laughs> I'm going to say that one's false. Okay, well, <laughs> well, you know, you'll make your final decision at the end. Mm-hmm. But all right, very well, let's good. Keep track. Very let's good. keep track. So first one true, second one false. Okay. Number three. Remember how young Franklin wrote a newspaper column all about fashion? Mm-hmm. Well, a much older Franklin was sent on a diplomatic mission to that most fashionable of cities, Paris, and he quickly became a fashion icon there. He wore a trademark fur hat, and soon women were having new wigs designed to resemble that hat. Coiffure à la Franklin. Hmm. Not bad for a man in his 70s. You know, it's never too late to become all the rage on Insta. Hmm. True. (laughs) It has to be true. It has to be true. Who wouldn't want their hair to look like a fur hat? Yeah. (laughs) All right, number four. Not even Benjamin Franklin could make everything trendy. While living in France, Franklin wrote an essay on the virtues of... uh, Well, let me quote from it. It is universally well known that in digesting our common food, there is created or produced in the bowels of human creatures a great quantity of wind, that the permitting this air to escape and mix with the atmosphere is usually offensive to the company from the fetid smell that accompanies it. Were it not for the odiously offensive smell accompanying such escapes, polite people would probably be under no more restraint in discharging such wind in company than they are in spitting or blowing their noses. And so Franklin dreamed of discovering a drug that would make farts smell, quote, not only inoffensive, but agreeable as perfumes. Hmm. Alas, this dream of farting proudly was not widely shared, and the essay never found a home. Now, it's funny. I would be tempted to say that that is false, uh, just because it's like, you know... How many people, how many people are that obsessed with farts? Yet at the same time, uh, there's a part of me that thinks, is like, well, right, didn't James Joyce constantly write about farts? But he loved farts. Yes, as, as they, they were. were. Yes. yes. <laughs> so there's no way that uh, this is a Joycean switch. So you know what? I'm flip-flopping, but I'm going to go with true. Okay. Those those Joyce letters, I mean, that, those were only in private letters to his wife. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. It wasn't like he told the world about this, but yes. Uh, he knew that it would be read eventually, I'm sure. I don't know. Have you read his Facebook statuses? My gosh. <laughs> the pages he would like. I mean, I did sign up for his OnlyFans, but... 
That's only farts. <laughs> okay, and our final, our final Franklin or not. For a while, Franklin lived in London, and many centuries later, when converting his home to a museum, workers found something creepy buried in the basement. Bones. Human bones. The bones of ten people, several of whom were children. Did Franklin go through a phase late in life as a serial killer? Thankfully, no. But he did take up an interest in anatomy, and dissecting the human body was tightly regulated. Only the corpses of executed murderers were allowed to be dissected. So Franklin had to keep his studies on the DL. So how did he get children? <laughs> you could find poor children in England, <laughs> in London, <laughs> in the late 18th century without much problem. So what you're saying is that Benjamin Franklin was Jack the Ripper the whole time. <laughs> That's, I think, a couple years too early, but yes. <laughs> I read it in an Alan Moore book. <laughs> All right, so those are your options. We've got the uh, advice column, pretending to be Silence Do Good, the widow. That's we've, definitely true. <laughs> we've got the glass harmonica, the musical instrument that wowed Mozart and Beethoven. Mm, I'm going to say False. Okay. We've also got the wigs in Paris that resembled the hat he wore. Is is there a third category for things I want to be true but are probably false? <laughs> That's most of Franklin's life. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say true for that one. Okay. The essay in which he wishes that farts could smell pretty so that he could do it all the time. A hundred percent true. <laughs> and it is the bones in Franklin's basement because he was taking an interest in anatomy. And there's only one false one? And there's only one false one. All right, then Then by default, that has to be true. Okay. So, final vote is for the uh, is for the musical instrument? Yes. All right. Well, you're wrong. Damn it. It was, in fact, a friend of Benjamin Franklin's, William Hewson, who used Franklin's basement as an anatomy lab, we believe. <laughs> Franklin may or may not have known about this. <laughs> wow, they were the original perfect strangers. <laughs> I realized as I was reading this out to you that you might have heard of the glass harmonica because... It is occasionally used in movie scores for the weird ethereal noise that it makes. Oh, see, I just thought where, where you'd mention it, it's like, ah, tales of people going mad. It's like, oh, that one's clearly false. Nope. I mean, they didn't, but that was the rumor because it, you know, it had a bit of a theremin type sound, let's say. And you can I imagine see. the acoustic theremin as a thing that people thought, well, that is weird. I'm going to um, drop an image of a glass harmonica into the slack for you. Hmm. Oh, neat. It's, um, hmm. The only way I can describe it is steamboat dildo. <laughs> yes, the, the bowls are all sort of cupped into each other, and they get smaller as they go along. And mm. yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I think you would enjoy the sound it makes. Ooh. This is Puerto Rico. Progress Island, USA. Oh, when did they change the name? So, Chris, are we not yet caught in the winds of Progress Island, USA? <laughs> oh, my word. I wish we were doing a scorner about this. This music is so good. Yeah. You know, I knew this day would come and we'd have to do this bit and we'd have to talk about Puerto Rico, which is, um, well, what do you know about Puerto Rico? Uh, everything I learned about Puerto Rico, I learned from the short. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. It's a place on the grow. All right. Well, you know what its relationship with the U.S. is then, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my way of answering that, yes. 
Okay. Um, so it's in a weird situation. It is a territory, you know, it's an island in the Caribbean. It was ruled by the Spanish for many, many years, became a territory in the United States in 1898 at the end of the Spanish-American War. America won it, basically, as spoils of that war, I suppose. And they became self-governing, more or less, in the mid-20th century. It's got three and a half million people, which is more than many, many states. And yet, it has very little say in some of the laws that affect it. And this has caused a lot of problems over the years, uh, as incentives for businesses have come and gone, as weird loopholes have been enacted that have recently really smacked Puerto Rico with a lot of debt problems. Uh, we'll put a link into, let's say, a video from last week tonight with John Oliver, which was four years old now and goes over quite a lot of this about how some tax breaks that were going on in the 70s around the time when the short encouraged businesses to set up plants in Puerto Rico, especially pharmaceutical plants, especially like they made a lot of Viagra there. Um, huh? those, tax, those tax breaks ended in 2006. So a lot of those businesses left. Then the recession hit in 2008, and Puerto Rico spiraled into debt problems. And there's a whole long, complicated story behind it. Then, of course, after the John Oliver piece came out four years ago, Hurricane Maria hit it. Oh, no. It's, it's rough times. And, you know, like, that was a really quick summary of some of what's going on with Puerto Rico. But you know, we are not the place to go to learn more about this. Yeah, you have to watch last week tonight. <laughs> I mean, that's a start because they've done more research than I'm able to do. But like, also, that's probably not where you should end your journey on learning things. There's lots of other stuff. For example, you could watch West Side Story. No, wait, that's probably not a good source either. Look, there are better people than us to tell you about these things. <laughs> this movie, this Progress Island USA is particularly interesting because if you watch that Last Week Tonight segment, it brings up two different films that were made by the Puerto Rico Economic Development Administration or bodies like it to promote Puerto Rico for businesses. One from the 50s, which was called Fiesta Island, mm -hmm. because damn, these people cannot let Puerto Rico be called Puerto Rico. That's just a little too scary for business interests. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a nachos order. <laughs> it really does. It's. I mean, these are really problematic, let's just say. And then a more recent one, which seemed very new, which I didn't get the name of from the John Oliver segment, but uh, it's real bad. It's really, it's, it's, it's told from the point of view of a businessman who decides to move his family to Puerto Rico and is like, why they have schools. And I felt safe. <laughs> I was just like, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess we'll have links to the show notes of places to start uh, rather than this podcast because this is predominantly a Donald Pleasance and Crypt Keeper fan cast. Well, we have talked a bit about Franklin. We said a few things about Puerto Rico, but not many. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's get back into this podcast's wheelhouse. Let's talk about a bad film director. <laughs> Ordinarily, we do a lot of research for this show, but you and I ended up being quite tired, so Puerto Rico got shafted yet again. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> it's true. Uh, but yes, the Francis Cardoza saga continues, although technically this is where it starts. This is the prequel. So I guess we handled this the right way because that would make Skydivers the Godfather. This is the Godfather 2 prequel scenes, and that inevitably makes Red Zone Cuba Godfather 3. <laughs> Alrighty. But yes, this is the arguably most famous of the Coleman Francis movies 
until the uh, the MST3K uh, releases, then it's arguably uh, well any of them. But Beast of Yucca Flats kind of had traction as like a monster movie that would air on TV. I think simply because it's a lot easier to sell a network like a package of movies and include Beast of Yucca Flats. Be like, hey, all these creature feature movies. Here you go. Uh, whereas, like, how do you sell the Skydivers and who do you sell it to? <laughs> but yes. This is uh, where the Coleman Francis Anthony Cardoza relationship begins. Uh, there's a fascinating interview with Tom Weaver. Uh, uh, Weaver interviews Cardoza, and uh, we'll have a link in our show notes to this. And it's just perfect because uh, the explanation of the relationship to me is pure Coleman Francis. Uh, Cardoza explains uh, that Francis called him completely out of the blue and, you know, he was a successful welder, like as we described on the previous episode. And Cardoza doesn't even know how Francis heard of him or got his number. (laughs) 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 And he never bothered to find out. But uh, apparently Francis knew because uh, Cardoza was involved with uh, Ed Wood and the like. Uh, he's like, hey, do you know Tor Johnson? He's like, yeah, I know Tor Johnson. It's like, well, do you think you can get him for a movie? <laughs> and Cardoza thought, thought about it and said, sure. And that's the basis of the Beast of Yucca Flats. Can you get Tor Johnson? And as far as I know, the conversation between Cardoza and Tor Johnson uh, consisted of, Tor, do you want to be in a movie? How much does it pay? Not very much. <laughs> $300 is how much he got paid. Yep. Uh, in fact, to clarify this uh, in the interview, and I quote, we raised a couple of hundred. No, I raised it. Coleman never raised a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that's that's essentially how they got started. It was like a totally low budget movie, and no. what a shocker! <laughs> if Coleman, you know, you'd think they threw the money on the screen if Tor Johnson only got three hundred dollars, but alas! <laughs> um, and so basically, the money just came in from welding because surely you can't profit even with the <laughs> piddly little budget of Beast of Yucca Flats, and. Cardoza seemed to have warmed up to Coleman Francis simply because he honestly thought he was a good actor. Uh, He had seen him on Dragnet and a few other things and thought that he was being unfairly treated because uh, Cardoza had stated that uh, both Coleman Francis and Ed Wood were guys with lots of talent who just needed a little more money to realize their dreams. Now, that statement is half true. (laughs) (laughs) But... uh, Ray Dennis Steckler kind of agrees. Uh, Ray Dennis Steckler is, of course, well-known for directing uh, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, or as it's better known by its acronym, Tiswold Lambus. Believes that, like, Francis totally just got the cold shoulder, not because he lacked talent, but because of his continued alcohol problems that plagued him throughout his life, as we mentioned on the previous episode. But... How does this movie happen? How do you make a beast from Yucca Flats? Uh, Well, it's simple. You uh, shoot a movie with a camera so large that four people are required to carry it in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) You choose your location as Saga Santa Clarita, California, which was just a desert at the time, but is now, uh, from what I understand, like fairly well populated. And you just film in the hot sun all day, and you just have your one camera, because you can't afford other cameras, but crucially... 
traveling microphones were an expense they decided they could do without. Sure. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, they, they filmed the entire project. It must have been easy for Tor, and it probably was like a quick $300, <laughs> because all he has to do is walk around. Yeah. And he doesn't have to memorize any lines, because Coleman Francis is there to say, Joseph Javorski. Noted scientist. He's not saying it on set. <laughs> no, but he's there to say it in the motion picture. And thus, no dialogue is required to build up the character, because we know he's Joseph Zaworski, noted scientist. And even before he gets irradiated and turns into the beast, all he's doing is just kind of standing there and slowly walking. Yeah, uh, my favorite part of the movie is when uh, Tor is being shot at, he raises his arm as if to wave high and then turns away from the camera. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's part of the appeal of this movie is that it's borderline home movies at points <laughs> and so we get to the finished product and we get to samuel arkoff who is head of american international pictures aip who are famous for giving roger corman a place to roost uh that's where the roger corman's post cycle comes from but also season eight is full of american international pictures and despite producing dozens of the worst B-movies of this era, Samuel Z. Arkoff cannot sit through <laughs> the Feast of Yucca Flats. The less than an hour runtime of <laughs> the Feast of Yucca Flats. <laughs> like, Samuel Arkoff apparently just walked out. <laughs> oh, man. Um, now, uh, curiously... I'd found a DVD of this, and uh, I shared shared with you because it has a bonus feature of a promised interview with Tony Cardoza. Now, did you get a chance to watch that? No, unfortunately, because I was so busy thoroughly researching Puerto Rico, I did not have a chance to watch that. <laughs> That's okay. It turned out to be a huge waste of time. Uh, <laughs> the The thing I discovered, because it's... Uh, the promise is that it's an interview for the VHS release. It's a it's a special feature from the VHS release that was poured over to DVD. And it's an interview with Cardoza. It's Cardoza and one of the co-stars of the movie. And they're sitting down, theoretically, to reminisce about the movie. But they mostly talk about Ed Wood. <laughs> and uh, obviously the more interesting character. And they're also promoting a then-recently-shot Anthony Cardoza film called Misfit Patrol that I had never heard of that is essentially a ripoff of Police Academy. Uh. Yeah, it's terrible. So you just have these two old men who, for some reason, are sitting in a room with a prominent V.I. Wisharski poster. Of course. <laughs> and it's basically the world's first bad podcast. Oh. But not the last. No. And their research on Puerto Rico is even more threadbare. My God, they had nothing to say. <laughs> uh, but lastly, lastly, I've got to share what I think is like the one good part of the movie. The one, the one decent moment in Beast of Yucca Flats consists of the jackrabbit, the little baby jackrabbit that snuggles up to Tor Johnson. And it gives you like a real sense of pathos and, and it creates this kind of Frankenstein's monster, not the book version, but the movie version, like this misunderstood creature, this damaged brain that's wandering around hurting people, but maybe not intentionally doing so. Certainly someone who's not thinking clearly. Yeah. Just to, just to clarify in case listeners haven't watched this episode in a while this is at the very end of the movie and tor johnson as the beast has been shot and maybe killed it seems and then this little bunny comes up to him and it turns out no he's not dead he's still alive which you kind of saw because as everybody's walking away from his dead body he just sort of 
flops over onto his stomach because yeah. it's more comfortable. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> this bunny comes up and he's very cute. And then Tor sort of wakes up and pets the bunny a little bit. And there's a little bit of worry, especially with Mike and the bots commenting about whether, you know, Tor's going to bite the head off the bunny or something <laughs> like that. But no, the bunny just hops away. And it's a very sweet little moment. Yeah. And you would think that it's like, this was the germ of the idea that got the movie made. No, sir. It happened completely by accident. <laughs> oh, that bunny just ran into the set and they and they went with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So clearly they must have used, like, coverage. They must have said, it's like, uh, the bunny's in the shot. Let's get some shots of that bunny or a bunny, and we'll be able to kind of cobble it together into a whole sequence. But regardless of the fact of whether it was thought out or not, uh, it ends up working as the best part of the entire movie why don't they make the whole movie out of the bunny yes uh oh and i guess lastly of uh of a weird and sleazy note you know that opening murder sequence that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense i i do although it's not as if the rest of the movie makes a whole lot of sense no although again it's like scene before credits how'd it get there right Uh, the only thing i i have to have to add and something that surprised me watching the film unmisted is that that's a nude scene oh and uh yeah the mst3k version uh simply just cut around it but it it startled me it's like oh my goodness this is as brazen as the uncut version of the brain that wouldn't die well, that explains why the uh, unmisted version is three hours long. They just mm-hmm. keep staring at her. Yeah, they, they followed every page of Gore Vidal's original screenplay for Beast of Yucca Flats. Hey, everybody, it's time for The Shadow 13. It's time for The Shallow 13. 13 tiny facts about the movie. Flag on the moon. How did it get there? Go, Chris. Go. Progress Island USA was released in 1973, thus making it the most recent short to be featured on MST3K, with the possible exception of Mr. B. Natural, a short that springs directly from the Godhead at all times, or, truly, in a kind of time that cannot be reckoned with our mortal conceptions of time. Perhaps one reason the gang is so gung-ho that they will survive the pains of Coleman Francis's The Beast of Yucca Flats is because Mike technically rifted solo between Joel's last episode, Mitchell, and The Brain That Wouldn't Die. We learn in Mike's first episode that he's been training for his big day by watching a bunch of bad movies, including The Beast of Yucca Flats, though we did not see it in the televised episode. Fanfic writers, tell us, did this little bit of continuity inspire a whole season of Lost Adventures a la Season 6B of Doctor Who? Info at itsjustashow.com! Now, according to several notable online maps and encyclopedias, it's in fact Yucca Flat, not Yucca Flats. But it's a real area in Nevada, within the Nevada test site, where every year all the children of Nevada are bussed in to take standardized exams and... Oh, no, it's uh, where they throw hundreds of nuclear bombs in the ground to see if they explode. Turns out, they do. And now, a micro-scorner. Gene Cower, one of the uncredited composers for today's movie, also worked on The Atomic Brain, Rift in Season 5, and Agent for Harm, Rift in Season 8. As the title card pops up, Mike dubs the film... Ah, Abbott and Costello meet the Beast of Yucca Flats. Though Abbott and Costello never got so broke they resorted to meeting Tor Johnson or Coleman Francis, there were sequels of sorts to the mega-hit that was 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. They were Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. In segment two, Crow is reading a comic book entitled Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. 
This is not some fan art sent in by a young Rebecca Sugar, oh no, but a comic that started at DC Comics in 1983. Rather than focusing on gay space rocks, the comic follows Amy Winston, a teenager on Earth who discovers she's the orphan princess of the mythical gem world and must defeat the nefarious Dark Opal. Also in segment two, did you catch that Tom refers to the partiers as a bunch of water buffalo? Hey, come on, keep it down! A bunch of water buffalo! Though completely forgotten about now, this phrase being screamed at a bunch of partiers was once the subject of a hotly contested snit about defamatory racial language. Let's explain. In 1993, two years before this episode was released, University of Pennsylvania student Eden Jacobowitz shouted, Shut up, you water buffalo! If you're looking for a party, there's a zoo a mile from here. To the mostly black Delta Sigma Theta sorority sisters making noise outside his dorm. The sorority initially pressed and later dropped charges about whether water buffalo is racially charged or not. Spotting a particularly weaselly-looking guy chasing Tor Johnson, Mike quips, He's either a ruthless agent or a schemer from Shining Time Station. (laughs) Shining Time Station was a television series created by shooting cheap wraparound segments for the pre-existing Thomas the Tank Engine stop-motion shorts, thus padding the whole thing out to a half an hour. Horace Schemer was the owner of the arcade at Shining Time in these segments, and was known for his slicked-back hair, loud outfits, and his obnoxious nephew, Schemy. In the unfortunately named Faps host segment, Crow cites Aspen Extreme as a film he'd like to transfer to extremely brittle nitrate stock. 1993's Aspen Extreme is an entirely forgotten movie about two thirty-something bros who become ski instructors or some damn thing up in Aspen. Honestly, notes are scanty for this one because no one we know seems to have heard of it, much less seen it. All we can confirm is that Due South star Paul Gross is in it, CanCon, and the trailer features a song by Rick Astley that isn't the one you're thinking of. We'll have a link to the trailer in our show notes. When boys from the city, not yet caught by the whirlwind of progress, feed soda pop to thirsty pigs, Crow quips, Pigs go better with coke. This is, of course, a play on the famous Coke ad campaign, Things Go Better With Coke, which used a variety of artists like The Who, Ray Charles, and Nancy Sinatra to incorporate the phrase into new jingles. These original songs were later collected on CD, which we discussed all the way back in episode 42 of It's Just a Show. Link in the show notes. As a woman goes looking for her husband, Crow offers this off-the-wall Star Trek reference. Hardcore, bent in mud, you dirty, rotten, lazy thing, thing, thing. Harry, or Harcourt Mud, was the focus of two episodes of the original Trek, one episode of the animated series, and at least one segment of the 25th anniversary game. Harry Mud is a big fat con man with hot girl energy, and, as such, is one of my personal heroes. The episode Crow's quoting is I Mud, in which Mud is attended to like a king by an army of sexy robots. Among their number is one not-so-sexy robot, a mechanical duplicate of Mud's wife that the portly crook is able to turn off by yelling, SHUT UP! In short, the episode is a little bit Asimov and a little bit Andy Cap, which makes it a must-see. And finally, hey, the uh, special effects in this movie, they sure were there. Anywho, the man responsible was Ray Mercer, who also worked on the following Misted Fair, Lost Continent, I Accuse My Parents, Radar Secret Service, Last of the Wild Horses, and The Sinister Urge. Ooh, what a legacy. And that's time. Coleman Francis solves the problem of sound sync. So we've mentioned this a few times, but yeah, there's no actual, like, audio 
in this filming. As you said, they didn't bring any sort of sound capture device to the film set. Everything is done in voiceover later. It's mostly voiceover. There's a few lines of dialogue that are dubbed in, but it's not like they're trying to sync up with the lips or anything. Yeah, and that led to some curious choices, because it would be one thing if the movie was dubbed. I mean, like, that's how they shoot, or at least how they used to shoot, Italian movies. So it can be done. Uh, and, and even there, it's like, most of the time, the characters aren't necessarily speaking their native tongue or anyone else's. Like, in some Italian movies, actors are just saying one, two, three in whatever their language is. And it's like, well, they'll just dub it in later and cut around <laughs> to make the sentence make sense. And, you know, I, I don't know what Coleman Francis was thinking when he thought, it's like, let's have this be narrated like a storybook. I mean, I know what he was thinking. He was thinking this will be much easier to make if I don't have to edit and sync up sound like that. He doesn't even bother to sync up gunshots. <laughs> That's what happens when your editor is Anthony Cordoza. <laughs> so yeah, so so on a related but not actually as related as it should be note, I want to talk about the only movie I've ever walked out of. Ooh, okay. Because it also had no sync sound. Uh, it was slightly different style. This was Derek Germain's film Blue. Oh. It's a 1993 movie. It was his final feature film, and it just has a blue screen. It's Eve Klein Blue. Uh who's a famous artist who got really well known for making stuff with this one very specific shade of blue. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's all you see on the screen is just blue. And then you hear narration coming in and people talking, mostly just saying like really pretentious quotes. <laughs> and like, I've got a pretty high tolerance for that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the people talking is Tilda Swinton and I've got a real high tolerance for Tilda Swinton because she's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't stand it. It was just awful. And also, the print was really dirty. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> if you're trying to lose yourself into this giant screen of one shade of blue, but you've got lots of, like, black flecks floating around everywhere and the, the color isn't quite perfectly balanced, it just, it just seems like it ruined everything. <laughs> I did not make it through that movie. What you might be close to saying here, Chris, and so think and choose wisely, is that you would rather sit down and watch all of the unmisted beast of Yucca Flats. I mean, I, I did consider that when I was watching the movie. Mm. I just wanted to know what the experience was like. I wasn't necessarily going to commit to watching the whole thing, but I thought I should give this a try just to see, like, what is this taste like? Hmm. I confess, I found it surprisingly enjoyable. <laughs> narration and all. Well, so are there any other films that have notable use of a lot of narration? Yeah, the first one that comes to mind is a very, very popular movie, which is The Big Lebowski. Oh, that's true, I suppose. Yeah, and that's got Sam Elliott narrating, and the Coen brothers are pretty canny about their use of narration. So not only are they using Sam Elliott to give the movie kind of like a, not just a Western vibe, but this sort of like grand-scale, archetypal, hero's journey-type story uh, quality to it, but like they're deliberately subverting that because the dude, uh, the central figure in the movie, whose name is the dude for heaven's sakes uh is such a such a screw up that it's impossible to take that seriously and at one point in the movie sam elliott's narrator character just plain forgets what he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> which is a lovely lovely experimentation but let's not forget uh, if there there is a film that is very well regarded that has Worse narration than Beast of Yucca Flats. Oh, no. Um, what is it? Blade Runner. Oh. 
Yeah. Oh, you mean in the in, I, so I haven't seen that edit of it, the one with um with Han Solo talking about what's going on. In the movie. <laughs> yeah. Why did they invite that guy in? <laughs> I I had always been curious about that cut because everyone said, "Oh, you don't you don't need to watch that one. It's bad. Stick with at the time the director's cut that that thing that was cobbled together for VHS releases in the late 90s or mid 90s, I think." Fair enough. But I'd always been curious because Blade Runner is this futuristic noir. And I always thought, it's like, but futuristic noir should have hard-boiled narration, like just like old noirs do. So why not? Why doesn't it work? Like, if it's, if it's just him explaining, that would be tedious. But surely they put more effort into that. No. Uh, no, <laughs> they did not. It's really just Harrison Ford dryly explaining the world. And I had way more respect for Harrison Ford when the rumor was floating around that he so hated this idea and so thought it hurt the movie that he did it poorly on purpose. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. Yes, but he's since clarified. It's like, no, I'm a real actor. I would never dare do such a thing. And it's like, one, anyone who's seen a recent Harrison Ford performance knows that he's not a real actor. (laughs) (laughs) That is something real actors would do. Yeah. You know, they would stand up for the artistic integrity of the piece as opposed to just following the money. Exactly. Shame on you, Harrison Ford. You made a movie worse than Beast of Yucca Flats. I have run out of things to say about this movie, I'm afraid, because very little happens. <laughs> and we just get the same lines of poetic narration happen again and again. But maybe, maybe Adam, you can wrap us up with one final factoid. I suppose I can. Uh, one of the things that we don't have enough time to talk about, but I am thrilled to announce that Tor Johnson is in more than one episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. It will shock listeners to learn that Tor Johnson is, in fact, a bigger part of this show than you might realize. So we can't devote a whole segment to him. Fair enough. But I do have an interesting final factoid specifically about Tor Johnson and his legacy as a monster in in regards to future pop culture, and indeed pop culture that would have started roughly around the same time as MST3K, a little earlier, but still the late 80s. Okay, I don't think I know where we're going with this one, so elucidate. Yeah. So essentially, uh, I have four letters for you. T, M, N, and T. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I really thought it was going to be C, H, U, and D. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Oh, man. If, if, if only, if only one of the chuds had said, as it's dying uh, words, flag on the moon, how did it get there? So you're saying it was originally Donatorlo? <laughs> well, we do get a Donatorlo, essentially, in uh, certain episodes. In the first season of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, while they're establishing the world, so it's the early days, you get the origin story of the turtles, people don't know that they exist, and they're trying to hide their identity instead of sort of flashing it around like super heroes they befriend reporter april o'neill yes and april as a friend to toitles everywhere sort of like a, a kenny uh, yeah she is the kenny of the teenage mutant ninja turtles franchises very she? much so <laughs> i never thought of that anyway go on <laughs> she decides to help them out it's like okay in order to blend in in new york city what you're going to need is disguises so what she gets them is Long overcoats make sense. Hats make sense. But also human masks 
Now, what human face did they base the mask on that the turtles are initially terrified of, but Tor Johnson? Huh. And I will send you a picture just to show you how, like, fairly accurate it is. These are the turtles in their Tor Johnson masks. They look like Rugrats. <laughs> they do look vaguely like the Rugrats, specifically Tommy Pickles, yes. <laughs> I never put the connection between Rugrats and Tor Johnson before. <laughs> well, there's a, a very early episode in which, uh, you know, Tommy Pickles asks Chucky if uh, he'll be famous in the movies, like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Time for gold to bed. <laughs> But yeah, it's a pretty good likeness of Tor in the cartoon. It is. What a lovely little homage. Did that come from the uh, the original comic strips, or is that from the TV show originally? That's specifically from the TV show, because while I think it's established in the comics that the Turtles, because they're teenagers, they like junk TV and late-night movies, the animated series is full of references to Ed Wood and uh, sci-fi movies like The Fly and things like that. Basically, anything 50s sci-fi horror gets thrown into the show in some way. So there's a surprising depth of uh, references in, in terms of that. And that all comes down to uh, the the head writer of the program who was just a fan of these things and thought Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would be the best way to get away with references to Tor Johnson in Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, kids got to learn about it somewhere. Hey, that's where I learned. If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you know of a really good, concise, linkable source for information about Puerto Rican history and all its complexity and wonder, or if you'd like to ask us anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com, and we're on Twitter at itisjustashow. We'd love to hear from you. This show was, in fact, made possible by listeners just like you. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help us research and record this show, and you can listen to all our superfan bonus bits. Find out more at itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash it's just a show. And of course, if you want to follow up on anything that was mentioned today, you'll find links in our show notes at it's just a show.com slash episode slash 73. When it comes to Sonic the Hedgehog, I have my favorite zones. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Labyrinth zone, uh, of course, marble zone for its great music, and same could be said of Metropolis zone, or indeed any zone of the first three Sonic the Hedgehog games, and Knuckles. But uh, uh, you know what? One of the trickiest zones uh, that I could imagine would be some kind of red zone. Do we have Do we have anything similarly tricky on the horizon for this show? Because I feel like uh, a- a- the past episodes have all been as, as fun and fast as Sonic the Hedgehog levels, but but we're up for something tricky now, aren't we? I mean, if you thought our in-depth coverage of Puerto Rico is good, wait till we talk about Cuba. (laughs) That's right, as you know, as we all know, next time we're going to be doing Season 6, Episode 19, Red Zone Cuba. Truly the end of the line when it comes to Coleman Francis movies. Yeah, I uh, I think that this is the darkest and dirtiest of the lot. Uh, I recall this being fascinatingly painful. And uh, once again, much like with The Beast of Yucca Flats, I have acquired an uncut version of this film, should you be curious. <laughs> we'll see. This is the episode that I watched once, enjoyed, and said, I'm going to save rewatching this for a very special day. And that day is sometime in the next week and a half. <laughs> You're like, hopefully someone will invent the concept of podcasting, so I may revisit this again. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. This day has finally come when we tackle 
Red Zone Cuba. We'll see you there. Be brave, everybody. But until next time. Podcast in your ears. How'd it get there? A thin plot. Endlessly restated. Take it away, theme squad. Someone give us the soundtrack to Progress Island, USA.